I've not been able to use the phone for nearly 20 years. The Polanski unit does not have, um, they do not provide telephones. This, so this is my, um, this is my first time to use a phone in nearly 20 years. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty, or I go to prison in death row. Mm -hmm. That's that's reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 2, When Ivan Met Amy. This episode, you'll hear Ivan's side of the story. But first, a phone call from 20 years ago. Main menu. To review your messages, press 1. First, saved message. Today, 1.07 p.m. Ivan, this is Stephen. Just wanted to... I don't know if you're able to get your messages or not, but any way I can help or try to be some kind of character reference for you. I don't know many details about what's going on, but uh, I just don't see how uh, it can be true. But uh, anyway, man, uh, um, I hope uh, you're taking care and uh, give me a call if, if you even have that opportunity at all. Good luck, buddy. Hey, Steve. Thanks for calling me back. Uh, yeah, I uh, just came across a voicemail you must have left about 20 years ago or so. So I wanted to just uh, reach out to you because I never saw your name come up in the case file or the trial. Yeah, no, nobody's ever called me till till you in all this time. So, you know, we used to work together and we were all kind of wondering, you know, uh, why nobody had contacted any of us, you know, and it was just odd. That seems to be a theme in this case. Ivan state-appointed attorneys had the opportunity to hire an investigator. However, they chose not to. And that's pretty messed up, if you ask me, especially in a capital murder case with a guy's life on the line. Looking back at the case, that is definitely true. His lawyers didn't really investigate any of the other leads. You know, they didn't talk to people like you or, you know, anybody else that could... Just the fact that they didn't talk to me, you know, there were other friends around that, that, that they didn't they didn't talk to either. So, I mean, it's like they didn't talk to anybody. Nobody I no. know got, got interviewed. No one. That's just not right, whether guilty, innocent, whatever, you know? Yeah, I at mean, least make some phone calls. You, you, yeah, not even a phone call, exactly. Steve tells me he worked with Ivan at a mortgage company, and he knew him pretty well for a few years leading up to the murders. Uh, I mean, I started the business, and Ivan, you know, he was always real nice to me and, and to help me, train me, and you know, bought me lunch when I was broke. And you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know what all was going on with him. You know, he had had some trouble, which I'm sure you're aware of. You know, with the, I guess the military. I think he joined the military and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, running, leaving that, or I don't know if he went AWOL or what. But then he kind of resurfaced. Ivan had already lived quite a life by 27. 
In his early 20s, he traveled the country with a singing and dancing company. He didn't do the singing or dancing. He was in their sales department. Apparently, sales came natural to Ivan. By his mid-20s, he was making six figures as a mortgage loan officer and on his second wife. They had a three-bedroom house, a boat, expensive cars, and quite the party rock and roll lifestyle. Him and his wife were doing drugs, aka partying and sleeping around. Pretty soon, they got divorced. He lost his job, his life was spiraling out of control, and he knew he had a problem with drugs, so he ran off and joined the Navy. Pretty quickly, he realized that was an awful idea for him. He was not cut out for the military, so he hightailed it out of there and certainly did not win any Soldier of the Year awards. After he got back to Dallas, he worked briefly at James's Mortgage Company, but by the summer of 2000, he was working at Countrywide, another mortgage company. He also had a part-time job as a server at Super Salads, an all-you-can-eat soup or, naturally, salad type establishment. He had the one-bedroom apartment with Amy Betcher. She was a party girl, and Ivan had slipped back into the party lifestyle. And what did you think when you first, you know, heard it? Well, I'm shocked, of course, you know. I thought, well, uh, I can't imagine that he would do that. Well, did you ever know Ivan to be violent or um, nope. never, nope. never saw not that at all? At all? No, not in the slightest. That's why I was, you know, shocked. Uh, you know, he's not like a big dude. You know, he's a small dude. And he, mm-hmm. he, you know, he um, he was funny. He was funny as hell, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, whenever I was always around him, mean, he was just always, always mostly in a great mood. This is what most people have told me about Ivan. Super likable and really funny, always cracking jokes. But because Steve had brought up his size, let's go there. You said that Ivan was a smaller guy um, back yeah. then. I mean, what size jeans would you say that Ivan would, would have been back then if you remember what size you were compared to that? Shoot. I mean, I'm 6'2", 200 pounds, so, I mean, definitely smaller than mine. I, I, ugh. I don't know what you'd say size-wise, but... Uh, what would you, what did you waist, wear back there? I mean, probably like a 32-ish. I mean, I'm about not too much different than I am now. 30, I'm like 33, 34 in the waist, but, you know, long. 32, you know, 32, 34 length. Um, so, I would say he'd probably be at least a 30, if not smaller, in the waist. <laughs> Thirty, if not smaller, and then how long? Yeah. Yeah, shorter, like uh, you know, thirty. Twenty-eight yeah. to twenty-eight to thirty. Yeah, what? that's what that's what um, I, Ivan says that he's a thirty-thirty, um, and but the jeans found in the trash can were a thirty-four, thirty-two. A thirty-four waist. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems big. Yeah, I'd say that that seems big for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what most people say. You you Um, said thirty four, thirty two, right? Thirty four, thirty two. Yeah, there's no way he was a thirty four. There's no way. I mean, he was. Yeah, I wasn't even a thirty four, and I'm you know six two, two hundred. Right. So you're saying that could that could be a 
could have been planted or framed or somebody like somebody got got in his apartment and planted all that stuff. That's that's what that's what Ivan says um, because yeah. uh, he says that uh, yeah, I mean he wore a thirty thirty. So how yeah, would that that would be more more like it of thirty thirty would be about what I would you know that that would be perfect in the range. So since Steve didn't know much about the actual case, I tell him about the detail that really bugs me, the Corvette. Ivan drove the Corvette early Saturday morning, being seen by at least a dozen people party hopping. And the police find the Corvette outside Ivan and Amy's apartment a day after the bodies were found, while Ivan and Amy were in Arkansas. So what's baffling to me is could Ivan have been that idiotic to murder his cousin, steal his Corvette, and park it right outside his apartment before leaving town. Yeah, but who's going to kill somebody and drive their car to your... That, 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 I mean, Ivan, Ivan's a pretty intelligent guy. Right. You know, he's, not, he's not stupid. And here's another big takeaway that has been consistent when interviewing people from Ivan's past. Ivan was no dummy. Ivan was pretty sharp. And now that I've interviewed Ivan multiple times, I'd agree. Ivan is sharp, so I find it hard to believe that he could have made this mistake and then come back to Dallas like he forgot he left the Corvette parked in front of his apartment. So that that didn't that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, like if he killed somebody, you're gonna park the car their car. <laughs> I mean that that you'd have to be the, the world's dumbest criminal. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that's it. It's wow. like, is Ivan the world's dumbest criminal? <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and leaving... He, he, I tell you what, he's 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 not dumb, but uh, that, that that just wouldn't make any sense to me. I never has. I never understood that. But, right. you know, one of those deals where you just on the outside looking in, you just kind of assume, well, you know, they wouldn't be putting him in prison if he didn't do it, but... But you yeah, know, that doesn't that mean anything. Mm-mm. No, that doesn't mean anything anymore. No, um, it doesn't. So that has been my conundrum with this case. The evidence against Ivan is overwhelming. Until you step back and look at it and say, wait a minute, a lot of this just doesn't make any sense. So let's see what Ivan has to say about it. Here's one of the only phone calls I've ever had with Ivan. This was from February of this year. Before we get started on your timeline, explain where you're at and how we're able to talk like this. Right now I'm at the Collin County Detention Facility in McKinney, Texas, and I'm using a regular telephone and calling you through uh, the minutes that I'm able to purchase from the commissary department. On February 13th, Ivan had a hearing in Collin County based on new DNA findings in his case. We'll be getting into the DNA of it all in a later episode, but he had been transferred up to Collin County a few days prior to this hearing and was able to call out. But how is this facility different than the security uh, at Polunsky on death row? I've not been able to use the phone for nearly 20 years. The Polunsky unit does not have, um, they do not provide telephones. And so this is my, uh, this is my first time to use a phone in nearly 20 years. Wow. Okay, well, let's make use of it. What would be the first thing that, that comes to your mind? Why should people hear this? 
well, they need to hear this because they, they need to know that I, that I never harmed, I never killed, I did not do anything to James or Amy. I'm an, I'm an innocent person. I do not belong in jail. And if people would just oh, take the time to look at my situation, hear this, hear the information that you're going to share, and remain open-minded and look at the evidence that we present and lay out. They'll clearly say that, that I'm an innocent person. I do not belong in jail. I do not belong here. And that I never harmed or hurt James or Amy. And I certainly, I certainly did not kill anybody. Well, let's start with, um, tell me just a, a little bit about you and, uh, uh, you and James. Well, we're, we're, we're cousins. I've known him, you know, my entire life. When my parents divorced, I, I only saw my father on the weekends, so I didn't really see James a whole lot growing up. Once, once we got older and we got our driver's licenses, at that point we uh, we stayed in better contact and started hanging out. And I want to say that was uh, shortly after we were 16 years old. But we were literally like brothers. Any anything I, I ever needed, he was always there to help me. And in today's situation, if, if James were alive today, he'd be the first one helping me with this entire situation, with no questions asked. And a little more backstory on Ivan and James. Ivan had worked with James briefly at his mortgage company. Before that, he had also worked for James at his tanning salon. He even lived with James and Amy for a few months. So they were close, like brothers. But just like brothers, they didn't always see eye to eye. But this story really starts when Ivan met Amy. Amy Betcher. I met, I met Amy in August of 2000. Before we move into the apartment, so we, went, we went to stay with my mother temporarily. And I want to say maybe about a, maybe about a week or so. And that was you, Amy, and Jeff? And Jeff, yeah. She, she, she still had uh, Jeffrey Betcher in tow. At this time, Ivan was 27, Amy was 23, and Jeff was 21. He had just moved down to Dallas from Minnesota, where him and Amy were from. On October 15th, just about two weeks before the murders, they get the one-bedroom apartment. You guys are living together, and, and how was that living situation in those two weeks? How would you describe it? Everything was fine. Everything was wonderful. But you guys were partying. Meaning doing drugs. Uh, yes, we were. Uh, and but I mean, not, but I was, I was, but I was all, I mean, she wasn't working. I was still working. I worked for Countrywide Home Loans. Plus, I did have a, a part-time job. I, was work, I, I worked at Super Salads also. Our, our relationship was great. I treated her well, and everything was wonderful. And, I mean, even though we partied and had fun, I was still working and taking care of my responsibilities. You were still working, what, Monday through Friday at, at Countrywide? Or, or sometimes even six days a week. Because, I mean, I think that's important for people to understand that you had that full-time job and were working how many hours at Super Salad a week? I want to say maybe 20, 20, 20 a week. So you were working in the time, in the weeks leading up to the murders, you were working 60 hours a week, roughly. Correct. Right, because they tried to paint you at trial as, you know, this guy that was just out of control and blah, blah, blah. We, I mean, it's tough to be completely out of control and work 60 hours a week. No, I was not. Right, but you guys were partying on the weekends, and would you party during the weekdays, or really that was just the time to sleep and work? Or recreational partiers um, on the weekends. But during the week, I mean, if, 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 it, if the situation came up, we would. But it's not like we made it a point to, to party or do drugs every day. So now let's start with uh, that Thursday, 
November 2nd, how does it begin? And just walk me through that day. Thursday, November 2nd. That morning I ended up going to, uh, to work at Countrywide. When, when, when leaving there shortly, uh, I guess close to five o'clock is when I, got, when I got back to the apartment. And shortly after five is when Amy claimed that she was going to the tanning salon. So she was there. The, the, the guard was monitoring me and he was kind enough to take one of the handcuffs off and bring me a chair. I'm, I'm literally hunched over. I was literally hunched over like a turtle trying to, 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 to stand up and, and, and talk. So I'm, in the, I'm, I'm, I'm better now. Well, around five o'clock is when Amy said she's going to go tan. So she walks out the door, and I want to say within five minutes, uh, within five or so minutes is when the, the, there's a knock on the door. And I briefly look out, and I see that there's a, a gentleman standing there wearing a, um, I can only really see the top. I can tell that he was holding a pizza box and wearing the, a, a Domino's uh, pizza shirt. So I, you know, I'm thinking they got the, the wrong apartment. So I, I answer the door. And uh, when, when I answer the door, he comes bum, bum rushing in and puts, you know, forces me on my knees and puts a gun to my head. And he's roughly about uh, six feet tall, kind of, uh, he's a Hispanic looking guy, but he kind of also looks white. And his hair's kind of pulled back in a ponytail and he's wearing dark black rim glasses. Okay, hold on. So, so, so you're saying he was Hispanic looking? Yes, he's definitely Hispanic looking. But I mean, but he, but he was also fair skinned, because when I when I was explaining this to to my mom and Detective Wynn, they kept trying to spin it in as if this was a, a white guy, but th- there was a confusion there, and he was he was clearly a Mexican guy, but with with fair skin. I see. And now describe what he was wearing and the color of the shirt, and was he wearing the Domino's well, visor or? Well, when he, well, when he, there wasn't he was not wearing a visor. He had on um, you know glasses, black rim glasses. And when he came in, he had, set, he had set the pizza box. I want to say it was either a medium or a large size box. He'd set it out front. And when he came when, when he came in, he was just he was wearing um, uh, light brown penny loafers, brown khakis, and a uh, Domino's pizza shirt. And it, was it blue or red? Or it was the red, white, and blue with uh, you know the, the Domino insignia. I don't know if it's changed over over the years, but that's that's what he was wearing at the time. Okay, so he bum rushes in, and how big of a guy would you say he was? Well, keep in mind, I'm having to look up from my knees. I want to say you know, he. I want to say he was about six feet tall. Okay. What, what else can you say to describe him? Well, his hair, his hair, his hair was kind of pulled back, like either like in a ducktail or like a ponytail. It was kind of slicked back, back past his shoulders a little bit, and he had a, a, a chrome, chrome gun in his right hand. Nothing was in his left hand, and at, at the time, I did not notice that he had a list. But when he put when he we know, so so um, let's just start let's just start back at the beginning now that we got his description. So he knocks on the door. He does knock on the door. Yes. Okay, and then so walk me walk me through the whole thing. Well, I look out the, the peak hole, and that's when I see that uh, you know it's a Domino's pizza. I mean, I don't think anything of it. I did not order a pizza, so I you know I, I open the door. Um, you know, thinking it's the Domino's pizza man, just to let him know that hey, you've got the wrong apartment, or that we did not order pizza, and then, and then that's when he, uh, that, that's when he come up and rushing in. And so, what does he do? Well, I mean, as soon as he, as soon as he comes in, immediately, um, I mean, I, I see he's got the, the the gun in his hand, and he you know forces forces me on my knees and puts puts the the gun to uh, to my head. Well, uh, my my first response was, you know, who, who the hell are you? And then, and that's when he says that his name's Matt. And I said, well, from, from, from where? And, it, 
I don't remember if it was right then or, or, or shortly after when he told me he was from the valley. In Texas, the valley means the Rio Grande Valley, the most southern tip of Texas. He says he's from the valley, and at this whole time he has... Well, that's, well, that's when he tells me that, that James owes him, or not necessarily him, James, James owes a lot of money, and that he's that, um, that 50000 has been paid, he still owes two fifty. And am I, am I coming back to James' mortgage company to help him close loans? And I told him no. In addition to the mortgage business, James was a drug dealer. That was in the case file, and it came out at trial. Apparently, James was making good money with his mortgage company, but also using it to launder his drug money. Witnesses stated James sold coke and marijuana. He would buy between 50 and 200 pounds of marijuana at a time, they said, and large sums of money were seen in James and Amy's house. Ivan, while an admitted drug user at the time, he has said he was never a drug dealer. For some reason, he was under the impression that I was going to be going back to James's mortgage company to help him to help James close loans. The more I told him no, I was not, the angrier he got. And then that, at, at that point, that's when I noticed and saw that he had a list. And I couldn't necessarily make out all the, the first names, but I did notice the last names on there. And roughly how many names? I want to say maybe less than 10. But the ones that I could see and make out were uh, definitely Tamez, Gonzalez, Cantu. Um, I, like I said, I really couldn't make out necessarily the, the first names, but I mean, I, you know, at that, that time, you know, when you're, when you're going through that situation and you're kind of glancing and someone's, you know, forcefully putting this list and saying, hey, look, look at this. You see this? These people are going to get it if, you, if, if, if we're not able to help. I'm under the impression that those people are going to be harmed or they're going to, they're going to, or they're going to be in trouble if, if James doesn't pay this money back to either this man or somebody that, that this man knows. And so he says that James owes him or someone else. When I talked to Detective Wynn, Detective Wynn claims that I said him, but that's not true. He was saying that James owes that James owes the money, not necessarily to him, but that James owes two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That fifty thousand was paid. And was he saying that he was going to come back and? I mean, what, what was the exact threat? Well, I mean, he wasn't there long, and so when I when I said no, he got I mean, he got he got angry, and like to show me that he wasn't messing around is when he when he fired right over when he fired over over my shoulder and shot at the wall. You'll remember from Amy's statement that she said that Ivan shot next to her head during an argument, and that's how the bullet ended up in the wall. What is your reaction then? Well, I'm thinking that the man's going to kill me, but he doesn't. He, uh, I mean, he leaves. He, he leaves shortly after. Uh, you know, I, wait, I stayed on my knees. I waited a few minutes, and um, you know, I'm, I'm in complete shock. I don't, I don't, I don't know if he's, if he's coming right back. I don't, I don't know what's going on. But I'm, I'm, I, 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 I get up and I go look. And when I look out the window at this at this time, I don't know that the pizza box is gone. But I go when I when I look out the window, um, I, I, can, uh, I don't know if he got in the driver's side or the uh, the passenger side. But he, he got into a black link and an old black Lincoln box style, I want to say late uh, late 80s, maybe early 90s, and uh, began, to, began to start driving off. And that was uh, when I was looking out the window by, uh, there in the living room, but then as, as the car proceeded uh, away from the apartment is when I went to go look out the patio window to see if I could get the plate, and I could not. And that's when the car was, was leaving the complex. And so how long would you say, start to finish, the pizza man was in there? Okay, and he did take the pizza box with him. Right, when, when, and then um, I, I, I was due at I was due at Super Salads by six, so 
um, shortly after when, when I when I you know I gather my things and I leave, there was no pizza box out front. So he picked up the pizza box when he left. Okay. And people have asked why didn't you call the police right then? Well, the, the reason why was what, what, what was I going to tell the police that that a, a maniac just came in and explain the situation and then send, you know, James is a known drug dealer. Was I going to send them over? When I, was, I, was I really going to call the police and send the police over to James's house or have them start calling James to explain the situation when I had no idea what was going on or, or he just, I don't know exactly how James would have reacted or what he would have done. In hindsight, that's exactly what I should have done, but I did not. I mean, I was, I was scared and I didn't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I've never been like, I've never been through anything like that in my life. Have you ever had a gun pointed at you? No, I've not. Now, and what about, this is the one major problem that a lot of people have with this case, is that story, it's it's fantastic. It's it just, it seems, it seems made up. It seems too crazy to be true, but what do you say to that? Well, I mean, that's, that's the whole point with this case. We've, from day one, we've, people have questioned whether or not I'm telling the truth. But as um, we look into things, it, it seems like with this case, we're having to prove the unbelievable. And the, the more we dig and the more we look into things and we, the more we look into the information that was, that was withheld by the prosecution, slowly but surely we're getting there. You know, let's look and review. Well, my, my defense attorney, they, they never looked to review the surveillance tapes. And, um, you know, we, we do have... Um, a portion of James's record showing that he was getting in contact with somebody from from the valley, and there is a phone number that exists. But um, at this time, we have not been able to, to 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 find out exactly who that that number is is located to, and we're still missing portions of those phone records. So we're having to to defend it. We're having to defend the case with cherry picked information, and it's a complete nightmare. Okay, so that's the Pizza Man story. Uh, you're probably going to cut off here in a second, but let's just keep going through it. Um, what happens after he leaves? One minute remaining. Well, we have one minute remaining. Let's let's just um, so we can start fresh. Let me call right back. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Thank you for using IC Solutions. You may begin speaking now. Okay. Y'all back. And that was the last time I was able to speak with Ivan over the phone. His minutes were up that day on his phone line. The next day, he had the hearing, and the following morning, he was transported back to the Polonsky unit, where he's not allowed to make phone calls. But before we continue with Ivan's timeline, let's talk more about this Domino's Pizza Man story, as it is a crucial element in this case. And it seemed to really sink Ivan, because basically, nobody believed the Pizza Man story. Whenever I've discussed this part of the case with anyone, it's normally met with the same reaction. That sounds made up, and it does. But then you start thinking about it. And then the question becomes, why would Ivan make up such a bad lie? So it can be argued both ways. Is this story too crazy to be true or too crazy to be made up? Regardless, this story has never changed and he told it to everyone right after the murders, his mom, the cops, his friends. He told the same story to everyone. It's another fascinating and perplexing part of this case, but a crucial part of Ivan's story 
because it was the reason Ivan went over to James and Amy's house the following night. So a quick production note, although I've interviewed Ivan three times as a private investigator working on this case, that audio cannot be used for broadcast. As an independent producer of this podcast, I'm not permitted access to interview Ivan at the Belunsky unit, where Ivan is currently incarcerated. So as this podcast reaches a larger audience, I feel confident that in the near future I can gain access to interview Ivan for broadcast. But until then, there's a lot more to this story. Ivan wrote out the rest of his timeline, as we anticipated we would not be able to get through the entirety over the phone. This is Ivan's words being read by an actor, slightly edited for time and clarity. And since you've already heard the Pizza Man story, we'll pick back up at the tail end of that and we'll continue through November 8th, Ivan's arrest. Shortly after Matt left, I gathered my things and headed off to Super Salads. My shift started at 6 p.m. and I didn't want to be late. When I opened the apartment door to leave, I noticed that the pizza box was gone. Matt picked it up from out front when leaving the apartment. On my way to Super Salads, I didn't drive by the tanning salon for fear of being followed. I wanted to get to Super Salads as fast as possible, and I called Amy Betcher during my first break to make sure that she was okay. My shift at Super Salads ended at 9.30 p.m., and I headed straight home to the apartment. Once I got there, I explained the entire situation to Amy Betcher, but she didn't believe me. How could she not believe me? Look at the bullet hole in the wall. At around midnight, Amy Betcher and I got into an argument. And during the course of this argument, her hand gets slammed in the apartment door. I can't even recall why we were arguing. But as we argued, the patio door got slammed a couple of times as well. Eventually, both of us calmed down and went to sleep for the night. And now we get into the day in question. And the night Ivan went over to James and Amy's. Friday, November 3rd, 2000. I woke up fairly early because I had to be at the office, Countrywide Home Loans, by 8 a.m. Once I got to work and settled in with my morning routine, I called James at his office several times. Unfortunately, I never got to speak with him because he was continually busy or just not able to talk. I returned home to the Pear Ridge apartment. Shortly afterwards, I changed clothes and headed off to my part-time job at Super Salads. I was at Super Salads from 6 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Once my shift ended at Super Salads, I headed home to the Pear Ridge apartment, and I arrived home around 10 p.m. I noticed that Amy B. was still getting ready for the evening. During this time, I'm helping Amy B. get ready as well because her hand is hurt. Shortly after 11 p.m., I'm dressed and ready to go out for the night. I'm wearing a black and gray club-style shirt, black slacks, and black shoes. At this point, Amy B. is still getting ready, so I call James. I finally got him on the phone, and as I explained the situation regarding Matt, the pizza man, he immediately just said, come over. So I drove over to James's house on Gibbons. When I got there and the front door opened, both of them were kind of standing in the foyer. Once I entered the house, Amy Kay went back to whatever she was doing in the kitchen. James and I discussed everything that happened with Matt the Pizza Man. We primarily talked in the living room, but periodically he would go to the bedroom. At some point in time, I realized that Amy Kay was talking to her mother on the phone. However, I don't know if Amy Kay was already on the phone when I got there or if the call developed after my arrival. When speaking to James, he said that he knew a couple of different Matts. 
I described what Matt the Pizza Guy looked like, but James didn't confirm whether or not he knew him. Based on James's reaction and our conversation, he believed me. I explained what Matt the Pizza Man said regarding the money that was owed and asked why he thought I was returning to the mortgage company to help close loans. Around midnight, James asked me for a favor. He asked if I would please leave the Honda Accord out front of his house to portray that he was having company for the evening. At first, I really didn't want to do it because Amy B and I had planned to go out for the evening. Then sometime in the morning, leave for a planned trip to Arkansas. I asked James if it was absolutely necessary, and he said yes, because he owed someone a lot of money. Again, James asked to please leave the Honda Accord out front and use Amy K's car until the morning. Finally, I agreed, but I would only do it until the morning because Amy B and I were leaving for Arkansas. At this time, I leave in the Honda Accord spare key, along with the Accord parked out front, and I leave in Amy K's Mercedes. On my way back, I noticed that the Mercedes was low on fuel, so I stopped by the Texaco gas station at the northeast corner of Frankfurt and the North Dallas Tollway. After getting gas, I then went to Albertson's grocery store located on the same corner for a few items. Shortly after midnight, I get to the apartment from Albertson's. This would be the point that Amy said, Ivan came home with the bloody clothes. Ivan claimed he was never wearing any bloody clothes because he never killed James or Amy. Ivan has said if the police had obtained surveillance footage from this gas station, the Albertsons, or his apartment complex, this would have shown him wearing the black pants for the club and not the bloody jeans later found in the trash can. But no surveillance footage was taken into evidence. When I get to the apartment, Amy B is still getting ready. After about 30 minutes, Amy B is finally ready to go. Sometime before 1 a.m., we leave the apartment. Before going out for the evening, we went by Smiley's to pick up a little bit of ecstasy and coke. When I tried to call him, I then realized that I left my cell phone at the Pear Ridge apartment. While continuing towards Smiley's, I noticed that Amy K's Mercedes has one of their burner phones in it. I called Smiley, but I can't remember whether or not I spoke to him. Shortly after 1 a.m., about 1.15 a.m., we arrived at Smiley's place. We socialize for about 20 to 30 minutes and get a little bit of ecstasy and coke from Smiley. Between six to eight people were there and we could clearly see that they were in it for the night. We left Smiley's place around 1.35 a.m. I noticed that one of the Mercedes tires was losing air. So I picked up the phone and the Mercedes and called to let them know that I'd be returning the car and picking up the Accord. When I called, Amy Kay answered the phone. And I realized having the two Amys might be getting pretty confusing right about now. But just remember, Amy Kay is Amy Kitchen. She is the victim and James' fiance. Amy B is Amy Betcher, Ivan's Amy. So this would be around 2 a.m. and Ivan is saying he called Amy Kitchen to let her know he was bringing her Mercedes back because the tire was low. And he heard both Amy and James over the phone. So according to Ivan, they would still be alive at this point. However, in Amy Betcher, Ivan's girlfriend's timeline, this would be the point that she said Ivan took her back over to James and Amy Kitchen's house to look for the cash and drugs, and she said she saw their dead bodies in the bedroom. So Ivan and Amy Betcher both agreed that they went back over to James and Amy Kitchen's house after Smiley's. Around 2.30 a.m., Amy B. and I get to James and Amy's house on Gibbons. As I approach the house, I press the garage door opener, and as the garage door is rising, Amy K. is coming out. 
Amy Kay said that James still wants to portray as if they're having company through the evening and for me to drive James' Corvette until the morning. Amy Kay goes back into the house while Amy B. and I drove off in the Corvette. As we're leaving the Gibbons' house and heading towards Club 7, Amy B. mentions that she wants to go by the Pier Ridge apartment to get a few CDs. This was actually a good idea because we needed to go to the apartment anyway to retrieve my cell phone. While I'm placing the CDs in the six-disc carousel located at the rear of the Corvette, I see my neighbor Stephen Mullins and say hello. Steve testified at trial that he saw Ivan putting CDs in the Corvette around this time. The state used this to tie Ivan to the Corvette, but Ivan always admitted driving the Corvette that night. I talked to Steve, and he said Ivan was appropriate. Ivan gave him a hiya neighbor kind of greeting, did not act nervous or suspicious in any way. Steve couldn't see Amy because she was sitting in the passenger seat at the time. So again, this could be argued either way. Was Ivan acting calm and cool because he didn't have anything to hide? He did not just commit the murders? Or is he a murdering sociopath? After the CDs are installed into the changer, we drive to Club 7. Shortly after 3 a.m., about 3.20, we finally get to Club 7. We enter the club and hang out with a few people that we know. However, some of the people we were looking for had already left, so Amy B. and I decide to leave. When leaving the club, we decided to go to Harlan's house because he usually has people over partying until the wee hours of the morning. When we got there, we decided to hang out for a little bit because people were there having a good time. This is when we met the party DJ, and we had never met before. Ivan used the real name in a statement, but we'll keep calling him DJ. And as things were coming to a close at Harlan's place, DJ invited us to another party close by. We joined the party and decided to hang out for a little while. At this point, we realized we'll be traveling to Arkansas soon, so we decided to leave DJ's friend's house. At 6.15 a.m., we entered the South Plaza tollway booth and began heading north to James and Amy's house on Gibbons so that I can pick up the Accord. Around 6.30 a.m., I called and shared that I'm just a few minutes away. So Ivan was saying Amy Kay was still alive at around 6.30 a.m., which will become a crucial detail down the line. Soon after the call, we get to their home. Just like last time, Amy Kay comes outside through the garage. She gives me back the spare key to the Accord, and as I start to pull into the driveway from the street, she waves for me to just pull into the garage. At this time, Amy Kay seemed fine, if anything, just a little tired. Amy B and I get into the Accord. After leaving their house on Gibbons, we get to the Pier Ridge apartment fairly quick. Once we got to the apartment, I really don't remember very much. All I really remember is getting to the apartment and walking in the front door. And if you're confused by all this switching car business, don't worry, you're not alone. Everyone, including Ivan's mom and the police, were confused by this. So, to recap, basically Ivan's story was that he went to James at 11.30 p.m. James wanted him to leave his car out front so it appeared that James had a visitor in case someone was coming by to do him harm. Ivan took Amy's Mercedes a little after midnight Around 2 a.m., Ivan noticed that the Mercedes tire was losing air, but then Amy Kate said for him to take James' Corvette. Ivan and Amy B. party hop in James' Corvette, and then Ivan dropped the Corvette off a little after 6 a.m. and drove the Honda back to their apartment. The main difference between Ivan and Amy's statements about the car switching being that after the musical chairs of switching cars, Ivan said he dropped the Corvette back off at James' house and Amy Petcher said he drove the Corvette back to their apartment. 
Shortly after 9 a.m., around 9.30 a.m., I remember waking up with a huge knot on the back of my head. Amy B. mentioned that I must have fell or bumped it while sleeping. There is no way, because the size of the bump wouldn't have come from sleeping. Amy B. and I gathered our things and prepared for the trip to Arkansas. When leaving the apartment complex, I entered the leasing office and dropped off a money order for the rent. Around 10.30 a.m., Amy B. and I are on the road, heading for Arkansas. This is another big discrepancy in Ivan and Amy's timeline. When they left for Arkansas. Ivan said they left at 10.30 a.m. Amy said they left around noon. The reason this is a huge detail is because James Corvette hit a toll tag at 11.15 a.m. If Ivan and Amy already left at 10.30 a.m. in the Honda, then that would mean someone else was driving the Corvette. Amy's timeline was that they got back to the apartment around 10 a.m. in the Corvette and left around noon in the Honda. Her timeline would not account for this movement in the Corvette either, so we'll have to get back to that. After we passed Military Parkway and the Mesquite Rodeo, we stopped at a store for snacks. As we traveled to Arkansas periodically, we would encounter rain or light pockets of showers. The traffic was quite heavy as well, and we did stop off at a few truck stops and stores along the way. After a very long day of traveling, we eventually got to Amy's parents in Arkansas. When we walked into the house, both of Amy's parents could clearly see that we were exhausted from traveling. Plus, it didn't help that both Amy B. and I hadn't slept very much before driving to Arkansas. Soon, after introducing myself and exchanging pleasantries, we started to get ready for bed. Shortly after Amy B. catches up with her parents, we go to sleep in the spare bedroom. So unlike Amy B.'s timeline, Ivan has not brought up the ring Amy B. was wearing that night. Ivan did not include it in his written statement because Ivan has told me they did not really get engaged that night. Ivan said they had talked about getting a ring and getting engaged, and they were telling people that night they were engaged. But that was just a fake ring that Amy B. was wearing that weekend. According to Ivan, she started wearing it that weekend because they were going to tell her stepdad and mother they were engaged and they would be allowed to sleep in the same bed at her stepdad's house. But Ivan has said that was not Amy Kay's ring because he did not kill Amy Kay and take her ring. Ivan said he didn't give that ring to Amy B at all. He believes Amy B got that ring from her friend Raina. But that's another big mystery in this case because it's never been able to be verified. Stay tuned until the end of this episode to hear more details about Raina. I'm hoping a listener might have information to help me find her. But now, back to Ivan's timeline. Sunday, November 5th, 2000. Early Sunday morning when I turned on the phone, I noticed that I had several messages. At this time, people started telling me that James and Amy had been murdered. Throughout the day, I spoke to my mom, dad, Carlos Gonzalez, Michelle Gonzalez, Tawny, and my Aunt Penny. Aside from Amy B., these are the main players in our story. Ivan's mom, his Aunt Penny, Tawny, his ex-girlfriend, and Carlos Gonzalez. Carlos, also 27 at this time, was high school friends with James. Him and Ivan weren't quite as close because Ivan didn't go to the same high school, but at this point, they'd all vacation together, and they were tight-knit. Everyone expressed condolences and genuinely just wanted to make sure that I was okay. 
During these conversations, everyone mentioned that the lead detective working the case is Detective Wynn with the Dallas Police Department. While talking with my mother, she asked how could something like this happen, and who would want to kill James and Amy? During this time, I shared the information regarding James's drug business and his dangerous lifestyle. Sometime during the day, I spoke to Detective Wynn. I was fully cooperative and answered all of his questions, and mentioned that once I returned to Dallas, I would be willing to sit down with him. He didn't seem to mind that I was out of town. All he asked is that he'd be able to contact me if any questions arised, and of course I said yes. Amy's parents asked me if everything was okay because of all the time I was spending on the phone, and of course I said no and explained that my cousin had been murdered. I was embarrassed to explain the situation because it was my first time meeting them. My first intention was to return to Dallas immediately, but with everything that had occurred since Thursday, we all felt that I was safer in Arkansas for a few days. Sometime during the day, I spoke to Carlos Gonzalez, and at first he seemed concerned and sincere, but then all of a sudden he said, Well, you're out of there and you're in big trouble because the Corvette was found at your apartment. Here's what I couldn't understand. Detective Wynn didn't seem to be upset with me being in Arkansas, but yet Carlos continually made an issue out of it as if I was refusing to return to Dallas. That was never the case, and I never refused to return to Dallas. Although once I noticed that Carlos was twisting the facts and information that I shared throughout the day, I certainly didn't trust him, and I sensed that my life was in danger. Monday, November 6th, 2000. Throughout the day, as I received phone calls about the murders, Amy and I spoke to her parents about our life, my jobs, family, and our plans for getting married. It was certainly an odd conversation considering James and Amy had been murdered right before our first time meeting. Sometime during the day, Amy and her mother drove off in the Honda Accord to the store. While they were gone, Mr. Kramer and I discussed all kinds of topics, everything from politics to his time with the sheriff's department. Mr. Kramer felt comfortable enough with me to show me his new rifle. Plus, with him being a retired sheriff's deputy, he had other guns and rifles throughout the house. Sometime during the day, I spoke to my mom, and she asked why I was refusing to return to Dallas. I asked her why would she think that, and where is this coming from? She mentioned that Carlos had said this to her in Detective Wynn. Carlos was trying to make it seem as if I was running from the situation, but when I called him, he said that he couldn't talk at the moment and for me to call back in an hour. By him sharing this lie with my family and Detective Wynn, I knew immediately that he couldn't be trusted and he was out to harm me and make me look bad. I honestly couldn't believe it because I thought that we were friends. After the hour had passed by, I again called Carlos, and during this conversation, he placed me on the speakerphone. I really didn't think anything of it, but nothing Carlos said made sense. Then he went on to say that we should lure James and Amy's killers to his house and take care of them. Immediately I said no, and then I wanted nothing to do with it. He continually tried to recruit me to do harm, and every time I said no. During the conversation, he said he'd lay down some plastic, as if he'd done something like that before. Shortly after my conversation ended with Carlos, I had the opportunity to talk with my mom and Aunt Penny. They mentioned that they were present during the speakerphone conversation with Carlos. Plus, they shared that Carlos had Detective Wynn and his partner listening as well. Once I heard this, immediately I knew why Carlos was acting so weird and not making sense. Perhaps this is why he needed an hour for me to call him back. He called Detective Wynn and his partner over in hopes of trying to show me in a bad light. 
After this conversation, I knew that I immediately needed to return to Dallas and talk with Detective Wynn. Amy seemed very antsy and expressed that she wanted to do some drugs. Obviously, we couldn't do any drugs with her parents being home, so we headed out towards the woods on Mr. Kramer's four-wheeler. As Amy and I traveled far from the house and deep into the Arkansas woods, we found a nice spot and stopped. Amy pulled out her glass pipe, and we both began smoking some speed. In between hits, we both sat on the four-wheeler and made out as it started to get dark. Eventually, the moon started to rise, so we decided that it was best to head back towards the house. Plus, we didn't want to get lost in the woods. Tuesday, November 7th, 2000. We woke up sometime in the morning and gathered our belongings. At this time, I believe that Amy's mother had already left for work. Amy and I loaded up the car and thanked Mr. Kramer for being so kind to us during our stay. Our intention was to go straight to the Pear Ridge apartment, but while traveling to Dallas, Tawny invited us over to her apartment. Once we got to Tawny's apartment between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., I called Detective Wynn to alert him that I'm in Dallas and on my way downtown to his office. However, someone at the homicide office mentioned that Detective Wynn wasn't in and for me to just call him in the morning. Since I wasn't needed at the police department, we decided to party a little bit at Tawny's apartment. As Amy and Tawny were talking and having fun, I decided to go to the Pear Ridge apartment. When I entered the apartment, I could clearly see that everything had been rifled through, plus some sort of an inventory list search warrant sheet of paper had been placed on the counter, and quickly noticed that every inch of the apartment had been searched. I didn't know what to think because the piece of paper left on the counter looked fake. It literally looked as if someone created it by cutting and pasting a logo of the Dallas Police Department on a piece of paper. The list showed several items that were taken from the apartment. When I viewed it, I certainly thought that it was a joke. I immediately gathered a few things for Amy and myself, and I returned to Tawny's apartment. I called my mom. I explained to my mom that this inventory list slash search warrant looks fake. My mom made the suggestion of meeting at IHOP so that she could see it. So Amy and I left Tawny's place and headed for IHOP to meet my mom and Aunt Penny. When we got to the IHOP restaurant, we noticed that several police officers were eating at the restaurant. We ordered a few items, and I showed the list to my mom and Aunt Penny. They also thought that it looked fake. My mom and I agreed to visit Detective Wynn's office together in the morning. So my mom and Aunt Penny headed home, while Amy and I went over to Metal's house. I have no idea what Metal's real name is. All I know is that he's a friend of Amy's. When we get to Metal's house, we primarily just stayed in the garage. While in the garage, we all partied a little bit with some speed. Metal's the guy that sold Amy her speed. As we were in the garage, I noticed a security monitor showing every outside angle of the house. You could see that this guy was a stickler for security. Inside the garage were several guns, bullets, magazines, and other accessories that attached to weapons. I was intrigued because I had never really seen stuff like this. Metal allowed me to touch and hold the different guns and accessories, so I did because I really didn't think anything of it. He had all kinds of guns, little ones, medium ones, and a few very large handguns. But Amy and I noticed that it was getting quite late and we needed to go. So we traveled back to Tawny's apartment. When we got there, Tawny was cool with it and allowed us to stay in the living room. Wednesday, November 8th, 2000. After waking up in the morning, I called my mother and Detective Wynn. When I spoke to Detective Wynn, he confirmed executing the search warrant at the Pear Ridge apartment. I continually explained that I had nothing to do with those items and I have no idea how they got into the apartment. Detective Wynn asked me if I was still coming downtown to his office, and of course I said yes, and that I'd be heading in his direction soon. 
I also shared that I'd be traveling with my mom and an attorney that she was familiar with, and he replied that there was no problem with that. Shortly after I met with my mother, we stopped at an ATM machine located at Frankfurt and the North Dallas Tollway. As soon as we pulled away from the ATM machine, we immediately got pulled over by the Dallas Police Department in the parking lot. So they arrested me and placed me in the police car. They drove me to Detective Wynn's office on Main Street, downtown Dallas. Once we entered the office, Detective Wynn introduced himself and asked if I was willing to talk with him. Of course, I said yes, and he placed me in a small interrogation-type office. We started to talk about the basics, such as, how is my relationship with James? Who would have wanted to kill James and Amy? Did I steal anything from the Gibbons' house? What happened to James's Rolex or Amy Kitchen's engagement ring? And could I explain why the incriminating evidence was found in the apartment during the search? I explained that I didn't take anything from James and Amy, and I certainly didn't kill them. And I explained that I had nothing to do with the evidence items found in the apartment during the search. We started to discuss everything that happened between Thursday to the time of my arrest, but he wasn't keeping up with the facts, and the more we talked, the more confused he got. Eventually, I asked if he was able to record the conversation because he couldn't keep up with the information that I shared. Plus, as I explained everything about the vehicle exchanges, he continually got confused. Detective Wynn agreed that we could record the conversation, and he brought in a normal-sized tape recorder. I continually told Detective Wynn that I didn't kill James and Amy, I didn't steal the Rolex, engagement ring, or anything from the Gibbons' house, and I definitely don't know how the evidence got into the Pear Ridge apartment. He asked if I owned a pair of Arizona jeans, and I said no. He asked who had access to the Pear Ridge apartment, and I explained that while moving into the apartment, we borrowed the Mustang from Anthony Fonseca, and when we returned the car, the apartment key was accidentally left on the key ring. Anthony Fonseca is another key player in this story, also 27 and a friend of Ivan and James. Anthony was living with Carlos Gonzalez at the time. What's interesting here is that Ivan has said that Anthony had a key to his apartment, and you'll hear in upcoming episodes that others have corroborated seeing an apartment key on Anthony's key ring. Once this occurred, I continually tried to get the key back from Anthony F., but for one reason or another, we were never able to connect for me to get the key back. And prior to leaving for Arkansas, I never really thought anything about it. I explained to Detective Wynn that someone was setting me up for the murders. All I did was do James a favor by leaving the Honda Accord out front of his house to portray that he was having company. The more I spoke to Detective Wynn, the more I sensed that he wasn't trying to help me, especially when he continually acted as if I wasn't being truthful with him. Eventually, I thought that it was best to end the conversation and ask for a lawyer. Detective Wynn said okay, and he stopped the recorder. He then informed me that I'd be taken to the booking department. I asked if I could make a couple of phone calls, and he said yes. So I called my mom and Amy B. to let them know I'd be going to the Lou Starrett Jail. After I made the calls, I was taken to the jail for processing. And this is how I ended my day. So that's Ivan's timeline and story. Like Amy's story, there are some bizarre elements for sure. Someone else also found this whole thing peculiar. And that is Amy Betcher's stepdad in Arkansas. He was former law enforcement. 
So what did he think about Ivan, his then-future son-in-law, during the Meet the Parents weekend? What was Ivan's demeanor like after this? After you met him? Calm, cool, collective. I can't imagine somebody killing somebody and being that calm and cool. You know what I mean? And be his first time. What does that tell you? Uh, I don't think it was his first rodeo. Next time on Cousins by Blood. And now let me give you the additional information on Raina. I know she exists, but have yet to find her last name. And she could hold the key to this whole case. In 2000, she would have been in her early to mid-20s, so now she would be in her early to mid-40s. Ivan believes she worked as a leasing agent and lived at the Wildwood Apartments in Euless, Texas. Ivan remembers her as being a very pretty brunette with olive skin. Ivan says back then she looked like Kelly Ripa's daughter, Lola Consuelos. She partied at Club 7, so likely a regular there. And lastly, she had a small child in 2000, so the kid now would be in their early 20s. If anyone has any tips on Raina or any other information about the case, please contact us at Cousins by Blood Podcast at gmail.com or leave a message at 469-382-2004. To find out more about the case and to see pictures, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cousins by Blood Podcast. Ivan Cantu's statement read by Ryan Freed. Audio mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>